Hello everyone and welcome to the 21st episode of Encrypted. My name is Ahmed Al Balaghi and I'm coming to you live from the Dubai Blockchain Center here in Area 2071 in Dubai in the United Arab Emirates. We're super excited to be partnering officially now with the Dubai Blockchain Center. And Encrypted, as all of you are aware, is a weekly podcast that is dedicated to guiding you through the blockchain and crypto universe. And today I'm super excited to be joined by two special guests, uh, Reza Rizvi, partner at Simmons & Simmons, and George Morris, who's also a partner at Simmons & Simmons. We have two lawyers on board with us today. Say hello. Hi, Ahmed. Great to be here. Um, uh, my name is Reza. I am a partner in the international fintech group. Uh, my background is uh, technology and intellectual property law. Uh, I've been based in the UAE and covering the region for um, over 12 years now. Um, and uh, the firm has been active in the region for uh, over 30 years. And we focus very closely on um, uh, clients in the financial institutions and asset management sector and also TMT. Um, and that all comes together with um, our fintech team. I'm really pleased that George is here. George is uh, uh, with us from London. Hi, George. Hi. <laughs> so my name is George Morris. Uh, as you say, I'm a partner in the London team, um, information, communications and technology team. Uh, so I started off my career as an IT and telecoms lawyer um, primarily. Uh, but in the last three, three and a half years or so, I've been working a lot more closely in the blockchain and cryptocurrency sectors. So we've, we started off uh, with our very first uh, ICO mandate about three years ago. Since then, uh, it's gone from strength to strength. We now act for most of the large uh, exchanges across the world. Uh, we act for ICO issuers and STO issuers, um, brokerages, uh, custodians, and also uh, large institutions that are looking to understand and possibly even get into the sector. All right, perfect. It's, it's great to have lawyers um, on the podcast. Um, said so sincerely. Sorry. <laughs> well, to be honest now, since the bear market, I've always said there are two people or two types of people making money, the, the good hedge fund managers and lawyers, <laughs> right? Um, but one thing we find in this sector is that, if, if, you know, if I do a talk to clients yeah. on, you know, outsourcing regulation or something, I get six people in the room. If I do a crypto regulation talk, <laughs> I can fill a lecture theater of oh, 200, wow. <laughs> no problem. People, you know, crypto regulation is, is, is one of the key sort of, doors that, that unlocks you know the true potential of, of crypto um, and at the moment it's what well, we're going to talk about it today it's one of the key things that, that needs to be considered a lot further and people are really interested in it not just mm -hmm. lawyers but everybody in the sector now Absolutely. understands what crypto regulation is across the world mm -hmm. you know people talking about the howey test all the time you know what other piece of legislation is quite as famous in tech circles as the howey test now absolutely and it's like you said um we're this whole episode will be dedicated to regulation and to see how and why regulation is important. But at least to get a background about sort of you guys in, in particular, you said three years you've sort of had an ICO mandate. Could you tell us the journey of Simmons Simmons within the crypto and blockchain space? Yeah, sure. So as I said, the, the first mandate we had was from a, a client who was a, a crypto brokerage in the UK mm -hmm. who came to us originally because they wanted to understand um, what they were doing and how it fitted into the UK financial services regulatory okay. um, uh, rules that we have in the UK. Um, they'd actually been approached uh, uh, by the FCA um, to ask them what they were doing just to check everything was okay. And they had a discussion with the FCA. We then gave them some advice and it was pretty clear that they, they were outside of any regulatory rules. So everything was fine. So that was the initial, um, the initial sort of piece we had. Before that, 
no, I don't think any lawyers in the UK had touched any crypto-related work. Um, and then a few months later, they came back to us and asked us um, if we'd like to help them to structure an ICO. Um, so we did, and it was a it was an uncomfortable uh, uh, task, actually, I must say. Not because you know the clients are great, but the um, the regulations at the time and the market practice, uh, you know, the market practice just wasn't there. There's you know in the mm -hmm. UK, nobody had really done an ICO before. And so we really were literally right at the cutting edge of what you know of how to interpret existing financial services regulation in the context of something that had not been done before, um, and that was a you know it's, it's an uncomfortable place for lawyers who are used to having a, you know black or white answers. In in that world, there was you know there were no black or white answers. It was all very grey, um, okay. and we had to sort of take quite a risk based approach. Um, so that was the very start, and since then there's been a, an explosion of interest. Um, one of the things that we find in this sector is that clients want us to not just understand the regulation and also not just understand the tech, but also understand the ethos behind where crypto is coming from. It, it's more than just um, you know a piece of you know, financial technology or a, or you know the blockchain. It's there's a there's an underlying ethos and a reason why crypto exists. That's that sort of concept of going beyond the sort of existing financial services sector and trying to do something different. And, and clients expect us in this market to actually to understand that project and to really kind of be familiar with that sort of way of thinking. Um, and that's something that we can really do because we've been working in the sector for so long. We're kind of blooded mm -hmm. in the, the sort of difficulties that the sector's had. We've, we've sort of yeah. been there along that, I hate the word, but the word journey. We've been on that journey <laughs> alongside a lot of our clients who've gone mm -hmm. through the ups and the downs. Do you think traditional banks um, in Europe and where your practice is uh, mainly based are... Uh, get that ethos and understand that? I think they, they, they do to an extent. I think there's a, there's a, there's a bit of a, a mindset shift to take place because a lot of the, the, the banks that we talk to, they, they see the potential of blockchain and DLT and they, they see that very clearly and, and all of them are investing very significantly in, that, in mm. that particular technology. In the crypto sector, most of what we're seeing is, is not necessarily them actually interacting with the assets, but working out how to be able to support the service providers in, in the crypto industry uh, and sort of working out the risk appetite that they've got in order to, to support these, these, um, these, these companies and just generally kind of work out how far they're willing to go. And that's still a process that they're, that they're going through to try and work out what their risk appetite is. Um, and so I think at the moment they sort of, they get where the crypto industry is coming from they understand the ethos. They're maybe not necessarily, you know, entirely on board with that, but they know that there is, you know, there is an opportunity there for them as long as they're taking the right risks in the right way and not going, you know, not going above and beyond what would be expected of them. And so can you talk more about sort of this grey area, this risk-based approach? How do you navigate that? What does that sure. exactly mean? So uh, I'll, I'll talk from a UK context, mm -hmm. although because that's what I know, although the, a lot of what I'm going to say will apply more broadly across, certainly across the European Union mm -hmm. and more widely. The, the issue that we have in crypto, and particularly when you're looking at things like ICOs, you have, a, you have a, a brand new product, a token, that has certain rights attached to it, as we all know. The issue is, is that the way that the laws are, are designed in the, in the UK and across the EU is based on defining products and then defining yeah. how, how you regulate those products. Mm -hmm. And the problem is, is that there is no definition of token in, yeah. the, in the UK in the Regulated Activities Order, the RAO as it's called. There is no definition of a token. So what you're trying to do is to work out what that token represents mm -hmm. amongst the existing definitions. 
And the problem is, is that you can you can put in number of different buckets. Yeah. So a token that rep, you know, some tokens might represent debt, some might represent mm -hmm. a derivative, some might represent equity. Um, some of the, then you have other issues like some of the the uh, the structures themselves that are being developed might not necessarily the tokens are the problem, but the structure like the pooling of funds from investors mm -hmm. in order to make a profit that can be a collective investment scheme. Yep. In the UK, that's a regulated thing. It looks like a you know fund of some kind. So the gray area is trying to make the leap between what the tokens represent mm -hmm. and how to interpret the law around it. Okay. A really good example of this is uh, stable coins. Yeah. So looking at Tether or USDC, mm -hmm. there's a really, really good uh, question to be asked about what they represent um, okay. in terms of how they, how they are regulated. And certainly in a number of countries, there's a, there's a fairly high likelihood that these things are probably regulated in some way because they look quite similar to products like in the UK, electronic money, which is mm -hmm. a regulated product, and a number of other jurisdictions are, are thinking quite, quite similar. So it's a very good example of the, the sort of gray area uh, and how to interpret the gap between what the tokens are and what the definitions under the regulations are, mm -hmm. and how to be able to get comfortable that if a regulator looked at your analysis, would they agree with it? Because of course, yeah. a lot of the clients that we work for Naturally, they they would prefer it if our if our analysis was that they're unregulated. It's a much easier space to play in. Mm -hmm. But we obviously have to. We don't give them the answers they want. We give them the correct answers. Um, and and so, who defines these terms? Then is it? Do you get textbook definitions from, you know, the leading crypto sources, or do you define these things on your own? How 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 does that work out? So we're looking at the the, the definitions under law, which are then built out via um, guidance from the regulators mm -hmm. uh, and we have perhaps that often there's some case law as well in the UK we have case law to be able to help us to understand how the courts would would um, interpret these different definitions mm -hmm. and then after that it's up to the lawyers to sit down and actually work out with the, with the token the way it looks and based on the definitions we have that are built up from the law the guidance and the case law how do the two fit together okay and it so it looks like then it'll still take quite a bit of time until there are clear definitions for each type of token or each type of activity, for example, right? Yeah, it, it, it depends which country you're looking okay. at. So uh, I won't talk about the yeah. UK much because it's, it, the, yeah. we have sort of a growing uh, regulatory uh, position on what the sort of different tokens are. And mm. so we have a, a, there's consultations coming out at the moment around the, the taxonomy that, that the yeah. regulator in the, in the UK is suggesting um, but there are jurisdictions out there that have much better defined um, definitions uh, the, the Switzerland is one where mm -hmm. for a long time they've had the, uh, three different types of token I'm going to try and remember them now yeah. utility payment and there's one other I think. security security thank right. you yeah. um, and that's a that's a, a model that's being um, that's being looked at by a lot of regulators around the world as being a, a fairly well-established model now one of the mm -hmm. one of the earliest models that was adopted um, and there are regulators in the UAE that are doing similar. Yeah, so the ADGM's taxonomy is also quite a sophisticated one. And I think yeah. when the, the ADGM, for those who don't know, so that's the Abu Dhabi um, Global Markets, which is a financial free zone based in Abu Dhabi, and it has a regulator um, referred to as the FSRA, which has published um, some guidance over the summer, um, and that has um, a fairly sophisticated taxonomy and a and a regime if you want to operate. Um, dealings in digital assets and that's uh, very much a flavor of the month at the moment certainly mm -hmm. in our conversations over during this roadshow mm -hmm. it's been a it's been a key feature of um, concern for a lot of our 
yeah. clients and I think the FSRA is, is is in many ways leading from the front on this. They've got okay. some really knowledgeable people working there, on, knowledgeable in this sector particularly, and they they have they've built a really interesting model that that I think a lot of other regulators will be yeah. interested in looking at. And Singapore as well is also I think another jurisdiction that has sort of been leading um, in this space because they've given out a, a quite a lot of guidelines, and I think they're the ones who sort of um, aided the ADGM in a lot of the things that they've done. So if you were to sort of look at it, who, which out of these jurisdictions, maybe there's another one we haven't mentioned that you think would be suitable for an ICO or maybe an STO? Mm-hmm. So <clears throat> let's treat ICOs and STOs differently yeah. um, because actually when you boil it down, they represent very different things mm-hmm. in legal terms. ICO being broadly the, the issuance of an unregulated asset an STO obviously being an issue of a regulated asset. When I have clients coming to me and asking which which they should do, and I do get that a reasonable amount, trying to work out whether they should go down the regulated or unregulated mm. route, there are a few things to look at. With an mm. ICO, you, what you are doing is launching an unregulated product, probably normally pretty much worldwide, subject to a few exceptions like the US and China mm. uh, and a couple of other jurisdictions that have been fairly clear that they don't like unregulated uh, fundraisings using crypto. Um, so what you're trying to do is find a, a jurisdiction that, that still has a fairly um, clear uh, uh, position on utility tokens. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are a number of regulators out there that, that actually regulate utility token raises like in Gibraltar, for example, where they have a framework to, uh, to provide a, uh, a process to be able to launch these otherwise unregulated tokens. The problem that you have, though, with an ICO is that if you go to a, a jurisdiction like Gibraltar or one of the other jurisdictions that regulates ICOs like Switzerland, what you're getting from the regulators is a stamp of approval in that country only. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you can sell within those countries uh, uh, completely within the law. But then when you offer your ICO tokens outside of that country, you have to consider the laws of every other country you are selling into. And that, you know, that's a if you wanted to do a legal review of every single country that you're selling into mm-hmm. when you're doing essentially a full-on internet-based ICO, that's a very expensive process and virtually nobody does it unless you're Telegram or something similar where they have the money to be able to, to do a proper review. So most most ways that they do a bit of a risk-based approach, they mm-hmm. review the, 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 the biggest jurisdictions that they're expecting to raise in. They normally review their home country as well to check that they're within the, the bounds of, 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 uh, of what is legal. Mm-hmm. Um, but what it means is that you you are always running a slight risk because you've never done a full review of, of your un, whether or not your asset is unregulated around the world. So that's an ICO. You normally you would normally go down the route of choosing one of the jurisdictions like Switzerland or Gibraltar that are that are you know they're credible and they've got rules in place to be able to uh, to regulate those types of uh, of raises. Security tokens are slightly different because. Actually, in pretty much every country in the world, let's talk about if the security that the token represents is equity, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. pretty much every country in the world has well-established rules around the yeah. selling of equity. This is what I don't get from many people, yeah. right? It's, we're shifting from ICOs to STOs, and it's like, no, not really. Like, the yeah. security is regulated already, so... You can't just, you can't just go, oh, I'm going to switch my ICO to an STO. Yeah. They are a totally different beast. Mm-hmm. So you want to do an STO, tokenized form of equity raise, for example... What you have to do is you choose the countries that you're raising in. You cannot just raise worldwide in the same way you raise an ICO because that's an initial public offering to you know, globally. Mm-hmm. Um, so you have to choose the jurisdictions that you're going to market to. 
you have to do a review of, of equities regulations in those markets and work out who, how you can raise, um, so how you can actually sell the equity and who you're yeah. allowed to market those tokens mm-hmm. to. Um, and then you have to do a check to make sure that the token that you're launching does actually represent equity in that country because mm-hmm. it may be that the regulator would say something different. They might say, oh, that's debt or that's a derivative mm-hmm. or, and rule, different rules might apply. Assuming that the regulators in each of those countries or the, the lawyers that you appoint in each of those countries would agree that the token you're launching is equity, then you've just got existing equity regulations around how you yeah. sell. Um, and then you just go down the normal route of following that process um, that's well-defined within the law and you sell your tokens as if they were any other e- equity asset in that but country. But then, so I do have a question. So it looks like you're going from something that has traditionally has a digital representation. So if I buy an Apple stock, it's digitally represented on, you know, through via my stockbroker. But if they wanted to get the paper sh- share, they could sort of do that. Yeah. But if it's a token, no, that it's now a digital composition. You're getting, you're getting a token that's... It's all digital. So when it comes to the aspect of um, wallets, custody, and all of those things, wouldn't there need, would there need to be new regulation? Um, or is there existing regulation already surrounding that? Yeah, it's a very good question. And certainly we've seen some regulators being concerned about that. So Raza mentioned to me earlier, he'd seen that the, that the Chinese authorities have, have essentially said that STOs are not legal in China. But mm. essentially... And, and there's a number of reasons for that, mm. but the uh, there are concerns from regulators around you can tokenize these assets, but that that brings with it additional issues mm-hmm. around sort of as you say custody in particular. It's a completely different way of holding the asset. And there are big question marks around um, you know the potential cyber attack and companies' equity being held by people who have stolen it uh, and being able to track that, trace that, get that asset back, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. It's it's a problem and at the moment. There's very little, I think there's very little in the way of regulatory guidance around how that works. Um, it's just something that the market's going to have to work out as it goes. But yeah. STOs are happening uh, and, and the regulators are, are, have you know, got their eyes open and they're looking at them very closely. If you were to talk about now the sort of the other jurisdictions or the different companies that are using jurisdictions like Malta, Gibraltar, um, you guys call it regulatory arbitrage, right? Mm-hmm. Um, how does regulatory arbitrage sort of play out in the wrong one? Is it something that is actually aiding sort of the, the market or isn't it not? Because for me, how I, a lot of people think it's not aiding the market, but in hindsight, if Binance, for example, didn't go to Malta, not many people would have, you know, superior way of trading these cryptocurrencies. You see, that's sort of that innovation that they had through this regulatory arbitrage. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know what, what, what do you take of this. I think it, it depends where your it depends where your head is in terms mm-hmm. of how you see the ethos of crypto and mm-hmm. where you come from. Okay. So if you are starting off from a base of um, you see crypto as being uh, sort of if you're at the sort of crypto anarchist end of the market, mm-hmm. you would see regulatory arbitrage as being a very good thing because what you would anticipate is that regulators would be pushing hard to be able to attract business into their into their jurisdictions you would have uh, the a developing uh, group of jurisdictions that are sort of technically offshore in the same way that we have in the more traditional financial services markets that are designed to be lighter touch and therefore enable more innovative more unusual projects to to take flight um, with more interest and, and less regulation um, mm-hmm. essentially fostering innovation but on the flip side 
if you come from the more sort of institutional end of the, the view and you want crypto to be more institutionalized, then you are coming from the, um, from the viewpoint that regulatory arbitrage is a bad thing. Mm-hmm. Because this is a global phenomenon. These crypto assets, they don't, don't respect jurisdictional borders. So you want to make sure, if you're institutionalizing it, that you have a consistent framework of regulation around the world and you don't have certain countries that are, uh, that are sort of attracting the wrong kind of business and facilitating mm-hmm. that, that essentially will uh, tar the rest of the industry with the same brush. And I think... I come at, I don't really know where I come at it from actually. I'm not okay. a crypto anarchist, but equally I'm not I probably do see that the institutionalization end probably isn't necessarily where crypto should be entirely focused. Um, I, I do think regulatory arbitrage is the wrong thing. Uh, I think that there should be a somehow be a, glo- a global standard for regulation that is light touch enough to enable innovation, but without allowing um, the more the less legitimate end of the industry to, to flourish uh, and and create a problem in terms of the uh, uh, the reputation of the crypto industry as a whole. I do think that the um, regulatory arbitrage that we've seen in the region has been a bit of a catalyst in getting okay. a bit of collaboration going amongst the regulators. Um, certainly, in my ten years here, I'm seeing a lot more collaboration, a lot more information exchange amongst very senior people. I mm. think that's got to be a good thing. Absolutely. Yeah. And could you give sort of detailed accounts about that or just a few examples? So even, even um, uh, formalising arrangements between the Singapore regulator mm-hmm. and ADGM yeah. and then also at various summits where you've seen roundtables, mm-hmm. that's something that's really encouraging. And I think that has fed into the analysis of each of these regulators and they do take on board what's going on in a global context. And I think that's, that, that's where their head should be. I think, okay. I think it's re- really good that a lot of the regulators are now consulting as well mm-hmm. on, on various um, pieces of legislation. Um, so, you know, last year you had, it's, it's, it's not crypto, but digital payments, mm-hmm. where the UAE Central Bank came up with their framework. And yeah. that was long in the tooth when it came to mm-hmm. um, the consultation. And eventually what's come about is a, is, is a very sophisticated regime around licensing payment service providers. Mm-hmm. and various other aspects as well. So I think there are some interesting developments in the region, and I think part of that, I can't make a direct link, but is because of that regulatory arbitrage interaction yeah. and awakening, if you like, amongst the regulators. Okay, so one one thing that I've actually have been thinking about, especially sort of speaking to a lot of people within um, the digital security space, I don't usually like to, um, saying the term STOs, um, let's say we call it digital securities, right? And let's assume in the US or in London, um, they figured out, right, um, the regulations. Mm. And if you had, for example, an exchange or a digital security offering um, that happened to be in London or in the US, those traditionally we've seen that um, regulations are exported to other countries. So if you were to have a regulated exchange or entity whatever it is operating in the crypto space in London for example it might be easy for them to go to ADGM or Singapore and say hey look we've got an FCA license I'm sure we could get a license in two seconds um, do you do you think that this is something the industry should be focusing focusing on a bit more and should sort of stop going to places like Gibraltar or Malta for the, for the short run yeah I think it's a it's an interesting point this idea of you get an F- get FCA regulated and then go and, and speak to the other regulators about how 
you've you've got this approval. Can we just yeah. sort of passport it in effectively? Yeah, exactly. Um, the reality is is that the the regulators have their own you know, they have their own rules and regulations, and they mm-hmm. do they they do follow them. Now, it, of course, it is helpful when you have a, an existing regulated entity from a, you know, that's regulated by someone like the FCA going to another big regulator and saying, can we can we get regulated? That will help the process. Mm-hmm. It won't necessarily be, it won't be a way through though. Yeah. They, they will still have to go through the full-on process of getting regulated. And whilst it will help discussions uh, and it grants an air of legitimacy, it won't necessarily be a, a full-on passport. The other thing that we, I think, need to be conscious mm-hmm. of is that while broadly speaking, the regulator's mandate is is the same across the world. Mm-hmm. There there is a nuance that needs to be taken into account. So here in our recent conversations mm-hmm. with regulators, actually they're acutely aware that the nation needs to diversify its economy. Okay. Um, and you know there are some goals that um, you know have been set from on high mm-hmm. about how much you know moving away from oil based revenue to financial yep. services related revenue. So in order to achieve that, I think. Quite rightly, the regulators have recognised that they can play a part in that, mm-hmm. and I don't think that's a bad thing. Um, but I think an interesting thing will be how does that marry up with a global um, solution for a global problem? I think that's where that's an example of how mm-hmm. there can be, you know, a bit of a conflict. Mm. Okay, and how, how does self-regulation play into this then? Yeah, I mean, at the moment, self-regulation is completely crucial about you know, in terms of making sure that the industry is legitimate. So and we're, I'm sure. We around this table, and many of the listeners are aware that, that the crypto industry is a is a broad range of uh, of entities, and it, it spans from uh, the most legitimate, uh, highest profile, uh, biggest names, all the way to some very very seriously uh, questionable players. To yeah. be brutally honest, I can't you know can't say it any other way. Mm-hmm. And so, but the problem is is that that, that massive spectrum. Mm-hmm. When when people look at this industry from the outside, they see this as one big. You know, one big industry, and they and they treat the you know, the the, uh, the less legitimate end of the market as being just the same as the most legitimate end. And the reality is, is that you have some of the really big global exchanges at the top end who are who are extremely well run. They're extremely well managed. They're very well capitalized, mm-hmm. and they've got an incredible amount of experience in the sector. And they're extremely legitimate businesses. And yet, they are in many ways, from externally, they are treated as uh, as being very similar to. A lot of the less legitimate players. Mm-hmm. So, in order to combat that, in the adv- in advance of being regulated, because although we do have some jurisdictions regulating, the reality is the majority of them are still trying to work out how they're going to deal with it, or consulting, or possibly just thinking in the background. We have to make sure that in order to be regulated in the right way and avoid being uh, slapped down with very heavy-handed rules, we have to make sure that we are uh, self-regulating and creating an image of the market. That, that a regulator could endorse, and the key thing in that in that in, in doing that is self-regulation. So making sure that the most legitimate end of the market are getting together and creating the right kind of industry that that regulators can get behind. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, self, there's there's plenty of good examples of self-regulation. Yeah. So um, GDF, Global Digital Finance, uh, mm-hmm. trying to put together a a global standard for for crypto regulation. It's a tough ask because you know. Global regulation is there's not much precedent, yeah. Um, but then there's not much precedent for the crypto markets. Mm-hmm. Um, so they've got a good mandate to be able to go out there. They're very well backed. They've got some mm-hmm. really, really um, clever, interesting, high-profile people uh, at the helm. 
um, and they're doing a really good job so far. Um, I can speak about the UK. We've got Crypto UK in the, uh, okay. in the UK, which is a, uh, a trade association of um, pretty much all of the largest uh, crypto uh, participants in the in the UK market. It includes people like Coinbase and CEX and Crypto Compare and eToro, all these big companies that have got together in order to self-regulate through a code of conduct to make sure that when the regulations come down, the regulator is not feeling like they need to slap the industry down, but instead they feel like they can use the existing self-regulatory framework in order to be able to create a, a full-on regulatory framework that, that is right for the market and doesn't slow down the innovation. Uh, but that is completely a, a product of the market trying to regulate itself and mm-hmm. making sure that it, it is a market that the regulators can stand behind rather than trying to slap down. Do you see that the self sort of the self-regulation, who should it be really headed by? You mentioned a few examples. Um, should it be a collection of different players like exchanges, wallet providers, um, ICO consultants? I mean, or, or should there sort of be verticals? Okay, there should be an exchange self-regulated um, vertical. Is that something that, you know, you're alluding to or is that something you, you're seeing right now? Mm. So I think the what we have to do is to put together a a structure that's based around what the ultimate regulations are going to look like, how they're going to deal with it. Mm-hmm. So if we take in the UK example, because that's the one that I know best, it's likely that we'll end up in a, in a scenario where we have regulation that is based around exchanges, and then we have regu- regulation that's based around ICO issuers, um, and then perhaps there'll be other types of regulation for other specific market participants, maybe custodians mm-hmm. uh, 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 and others. So we need to we need to be aligning ourselves with what the likely output is from the regulators to give them the best framework to be able to work from. Okay. Um, so I think it is a case of anticipating the way that the regulators are going to go and trying to structure it in that way in order to make sure that we're kind of aligning ourselves with the likely outcome from the from the regulatory pro- process. Okay, Reza, you mentioned that um, you guys been on the road within the region talking to different regulators and and clients as well. So could you sort of just share your experience um, in sort of dealing with, with these different regulators and what they actually think um, about, about this market? So one, certainly one of the takeaways was that, um, you know, they, they, they're addressing the same theme. So mm-hmm. market integrity um, and um, wanting to really um, attract the right sort of players. Mm-hmm. So I don't think there's any doubt that they are um, open to the idea of um, having licensed operators who will be able to really help propel the industry in a, in a sensible way. I think that's a consistent theme. Um, I think I mentioned earlier that there is a spectrum uh, of sophistication, mm-hmm. but that, that's just a- anywhere you would go where you have um, more than one um, sort of person doing the same function. But that is a theme. I think what other themes have come out, George? Well, I think overall, well, you're right about the sort of attracting the right players. I think the other thing is the, is the, the global um, cooperation between regulators. So a lot of uh, cross-border discussions to, to enable this hopefully global regulatory framework uh, in due course and making sure mm-hmm. that there's alignment between regulators. That's been another big theme. Um, which the other really- encouraging thing is that a lot of these regulators um, have brought on board specialist subject matter experts mm-hmm. Um, to now lead those initiatives, okay. often from other jurisdictions, okay, which again is a very progressive yeah. move for the region, rather than giving somebody who perhaps doesn't have that international exposure and international expertise 
to be able to offer an well, opinion. Even the technical expertise as well. Exactly. Yeah. So you mentioned a really interesting word, which is integrity. And I wanted to sort of just read a really interesting phrase that I was um, looking at uh, from a Coindesk article. Basically, he summarized it in a very interesting way, saying a referee gives a red card for a handball in a soccer match, not to stop an innovative form of play, but to protect the integrity of the game. So I thought that was an interesting sort of touch, just given that you said integrity. Mm. Um, okay, and... Before we sort of shoot off, I still have one or two more questions. Um, the first one is regarding smart contracts and how many people say that lawyers are, you know, <laughs> they will be, um, they won't be needed in the future because of the automation element of smart contracts. What do you guys think of it? How is Simmons and Simmons really looking into the smart contract ecosystem, and are you sort of building a, you know, a tech team? internally to actually build something for the future yeah so we've done a bit of work in the sector in terms mm. of working out what they are and what they represent and certainly under english law thinking about you know are they contracts uh, how would you build them mm. the, the major outcomes that we're, that we're looking at and what we think is likely is that it, we don't suspect there's going to be extreme levels of automation through smart contracts of, okay. of, of the legal process anytime soon um but at the same time, we, we appreciate that they are relatively soon going to be quite complementary to the work that we already do. Mm -hmm. uh, so what we're expecting is we're not going to get rid of the written contract anytime soon. But what we will see and what we believe we'll see is an automation of certain elements of written contracts onto the blockchain via smart contracts. Mm. For um, example? Uh, for example, so payment-related obligations. Mm -hmm. Imagine uh, a world where you have a... Um, uh, it's difficult to come up with an example yeah. on the fly, but say a you know, services-based contract yeah. where um, the services are provided you know, via cloud, for example. You know that the services are being provided because the cloud solution is available to the client, and therefore it's fairly easy for a, uh, for a piece of software, for a smart contract, to be able to determine availability of the software yeah. uh, and mm -hmm. to know how long it's been up for. Mm -hmm. Uh, in the previous month, for example, mm -hmm. and then perhaps the parties had agreed that they would transact using a stablecoin, like Tether or USDC, and then the smart contract would automatically send the payment for the month's worth of, of cloud service based on the availability that it knows about, mm -hmm. um, and be able to, to transfer that, uh, transfer the cash to be able to make the, uh, to make the payment. But I don't think that, that anybody at this stage would probably, you know, I don't think we're going to see Microsoft adopting that uh, for a zero platform anytime soon, because firstly, there's a there's a just a genuine sort of it, that's a bit scary for lawyers to to sort of work out what happens if perhaps you know the uptime was good, but it turns out that maybe the functionality wasn't completely available. Mm -hmm. Could a smart contract determine that? Would we want to pay automatically if perhaps we just weren't happy with how you know maybe the cloud service just wasn't operating properly, but it was still yeah. available. As an example, you'd still want a written contract in the background mm -hmm. to be able to always have that recourse okay. in the event that the smart contract didn't work in the way that you wanted it to work. Yeah, and I think the only other point is around, um, I guess, judicial recognition mm -hmm. of smart contracts. I mean, you have a much higher degree of certainty when there is a traditional form of contract. Um, we were having a discussion about implied contracts overlaying smart contracts, but you don't want to be in that position if you're party that wants to enforce mm -hmm. so i think there's still a delta yeah that's right i think the yeah i mean I, i'm not familiar with the with the uae contract law but in the uk if you have an implied contract 
what the what the court would do. Now, this is a contract where it's not written down. The court is saying, okay, there must have been an agreement between you, okay. and we're going to imply that there was one so that we can litigate for you, basically. Mm -hmm. Uh, and in that scenario, the court would have to work out what the intention of both parties was. Mm. And most probably, the easiest way to work out the intention is to look at what the smart contract actually did, because the parties <laughs> must have intended that that yeah. was the outcome, because that's the way they wrote it. Um, and the single parties doing the coding without validation, exactly. was there an intention? Was it, uh, yeah. you know, can and you say that the parties had the, you know... Uh, whether ideas aligned at the time. Yeah. So and certainly Eng legally it's complex. And yeah, Engl English courts hate to try and work out the intention <laughs> of the parties because it's such a difficult thing to do. Yeah. So having the written contract in the background that effectively is the statement of intent on both sides means that you could actually genuinely litigate a smart contract, although the reality is you'd be litigating the written contract that sits underneath it. The smart contract is just a, a functionality that sits on top of the written contract effectively automation of a written Could contract. there be some AI development that sort of radically changes that in terms yeah, of... Yeah, it's a really interesting thing. So when you, when lawyers talk about smart contracts, everybody always says, firstly, they're not smart and they're not a contract. The number <laughs> of times I've heard that, and actually yeah. a number of times I've said that myself, uh, is getting a bit boring now. But it's true. They're not smart in reality. They're very difficult to write, but they do one thing or the other. They execute or they don't. And, and often lawyers say, okay, well, they're not going to put me out of a job now because who's going to interpret what reasonable endeavours mean, reasonable efforts? That's a, a UK law concept that's, that's probably much broader than just the UK, but it's a concept that needs to be uh, needs to be interpreted by a human being. Mm -hmm. And this context-specific. Very yeah. context-specific. But perhaps you can imagine a scenario, but I don't think that, that we're at this stage of development yet, but a scenario where you put AI onto a blockchain and the AI is designed to be able to uh, interpret what reasonable endeavors means in a particular scenario. Yeah. So you, you code this AI to be able to understand what in the past the courts have looked at to determine what reasonable endeavors means and then it makes its own determination based on that, on the, that, on that history and the coding. Now again, it's, it's never going to be foolproof but it's a very, very interesting concept as to whether or not that could be done in due course. And, and once we can do that, you're into being able to automate much more complicated elements of the contract than just a, a yes or no answer. Okay, so if people um, from the crypto anarchist or sort of the decentralized space start coming out and deploying more smart contracts or uh, more AI-based smart contracts... Um, how does that play, given the fact that um, one of the commissioners of the CFTC in the US has said that if developers actually deploy smart contracts, they are basically liable for anything that actually does happen? Does it aid the industry? I think you know the liability question is just one of the big mm. open questions around um, AI uh, and smart contracts generally. Um, I think uh, you know we're at very early days, and there are so many okay. specific um, scenarios um, that that you can't really legislate for at the moment. Yeah. Mm, yeah, I think it it's an interesting concept because certainly I'm going to go back to my UK law piece, given that that's what I know. But in the UK, contract law is actually very permissive. You can pretty much agree anything you like, subject to some very limited bounds of. You know, around things like personal injury and stuff, which is obviously extremely important. Now, that what you talk, what the CFTC is talking about is limitations of liability. It's mm -hmm. developers being able to limit their liability for their output, and it would be certainly in the UK, it would be a it would be a very significant stretch by 
a regulator or the judiciary to be able to suggest that in respect to a particular product that had been created, you couldn't limit your liability for, uh, for the losses that might be suffered as a result of it going wrong. It would be a very unusual step to take in the UK. I can't speak for the US, which the CFTC obviously is speaking mm. for. So in, in general regulation pieces, is this something that is seen as unusual? It would be very unusual okay. in the UK to see that. Okay. Um, we think about it in the context of how software development works today. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so there's plenty of, con- of solutions out there that aren't smart contract based, but they are systems that are built by developers and they are designed to, to automate functions. And there's a lot of automated trading facilities, for example, that banks use. And, and they regularly you know, go wrong. We have flash crashes mm-hmm. because they weren't designed right. And yet there's no suggestion from the CFTC that those types of scenarios would lead to, to what we call in the UK a strict liability for a developer that built that. Okay. That would be the, that's the bank's problem, the, the user rather than the developer. And I think we have to just follow the same process. It's, mm. it's just the same. It's just it happens, they happen to be blockchain-based in this, in this context. Okay. Well, that was a really interesting discussion. And before we wrap up, I really want to take your views um, uh, regarding 2019 um, and at least the next couple of years going forward. What, what's, your, what's your guys' outlook? Well, from, um, from a local perspective, I was just intrigued by a story from earlier today, mm. which relates to crypto, where um, the UAE central bank announced that it's going to be issuing um, crypto to be uh, to help with the um, interbank settlements between UAE banks, regulated banks, and SAMA in Saudi Arabia. Mm-hmm. So I think that's quite an interesting and novel development. Um, I only heard about it yesterday, and I think yeah. let's see if that plays out in 2019. Mm. Yeah, and I agree. Uh, in on a more broader context, the I think the the crash in the price has been an interesting one. Um, certainly, a lot of our clients have said that okay, it's not great for cash flows, but it's good for the industry um, because it, it takes the focus away from price and more towards the kind of things that Raz is talking about about using the technology not because it, it because Bitcoin has value which you can trade on and make money from, but because it has an underlying use case which is much broader than just than just speculation. And I think 2019 is going to be, mm. for the industry, is going to be focusing much more on what the technology is capable of rather than how much each of these cryptos are worth, I hope. Well, I, I definitely agree with that, absolutely. And I think it's something where the, the crash in the price is something where we basically weed out all the bad players mm. um, and we just focus on building and developing as well. Hopefully self-regulation becomes a more prominent theme. Mm. Well, um, I'd like to know as well, just one final thing, where could people find more about you, George, and, and you, Reza? Yeah, so, well, go to the website. <laughs> no, I'm joking. I mean, so, I mean, Raza and I are both very well published on this, on the internet. We've got articles um, on our on our Simmons & Simmons website and on our Alexa platform, which you can register for. Um, we also regularly speak at events, uh, so there's plenty of events going on in the UAE and the UK, which people can can catch. Um, so there's plenty to be uh, plenty to be able to, to find us on. Equally, you know, we have email addresses on the website if anybody wants to get in touch and, and talk further about anything that they're doing. And Simmons and Simmons has a fin, fin, uh, fintech and I think blockchain. Uh, LinkedIn account as well so mm-hmm. a lot of interesting stuff on there from a global perspective well thank you very much gentlemen and for everyone out there listening if you really like this episode please hit that subscribe button and please give us a review those reviews help the show a lot 
and if you like the episode do tell a friend please share it um, on social media we are at encrypt underscore d um, on twitter and on instagram and we're also on linkedin so do find us there if you want to get in touch and um, thank you very much george and, and reza for getting on the show no problem thanks, thanks. for having us